If you've ever ridden the subway in New York City, you know that there's a rather unique culture that exists on a subway train. <laughs> it's a bit of a paradox. It's usually packed, and yet it's absolutely silent. Sort of this awkward culture as people are either reading a book or they're scrolling through their phones, or maybe they have music plugged in their ears, they're just kind of listening, and it's this unusual environment where you have all of these people, and yet it's virtually silent as the train is making its way underneath the streets of New York City. Heard the story recently of uh, a moment that sort of broke that silence. There was a 11 or 12 year old boy down at the end of the train and, and people on the train began to hear him say this, I want my mommy. And they looked and what's a 12 year old boy saying he wants his mommy for? He said it again, I want my mommy. And people stopped what they were doing. They looked. Is he hurt? Is he, is he lost? Does mom get off? And he didn't. And then it became clear that he wasn't saying, I want my mommy. He was saying, I want my money. And as he said it, he said it louder and louder. It broke the sort of silence that was happening in the train at the time. And he was pointing at a guy who was sitting right in front of him. And he said to him, I want my money. I want my money. Now everyone's looking and going, what's going to happen here? Careful little inquiry, took a look, you'd see he was holding a bag of candy. And what he'd been doing is he'd been walking around selling candy to people on the train. And apparently this guy thought he could take the candy and not pay the kid. Yeah, he got on the wrong train. Because <laughs> the kid said it louder, I want my money, I want my money. And right about then the train stopped, the doors opened, and the kid jumped in the middle of the way of all the sea of humanity and put his arms on the outside of each of those doors to hold them from closing. And he said to the man, I want my money. And at this point in time, the culture and the train began to shift pretty quickly. So people were like, dude, give him the money for crying out loud. Are you stealing candy from a kid? Come on. And the shame of the moment caused the guy to reach into his wallet, pulled out, gave the kid a lot more money than what he'd even needed in the first place. And the kid said, I want my money. And he walked away as the train emptied. The little boy didn't care what anybody thought. He didn't care about the culture of the train, didn't care how embarrassed he might be, didn't care that some pastor would be telling the story about him, you know, months later. All he knew is that he was desperate. He wanted his money. Now you need to know that throughout the Bible, you'll hear similar tones, but not about money. The Bible is filled with people who are desperate. Think, for instance, in the Old Testament. Abraham nearly sacrificing his only son Isaac. The Israelites who are standing at the brink of the Red Sea while Pharaoh and his host are coming at them. David who's running for his life from a crazy king, hiding in caves, writing songs about it. Or, or Hezekiah who lays out a letter before the Lord in the temple after receiving a threatening note from the king of Assyria as he says, God, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. In the New Testament, you'd find the same tone of desperation of Peter who sinks into the water and cries out to Jesus, Lord, help me. Or the man who's blind on the side of the road who says to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Or the non-Jewish woman who has a demon-possessed daughter and he, she says to Jesus, would you please heal my daughter? Jesus, even in his parables, talks about the importance of desperation. In Luke chapter 18, it, 
he refers to a woman who keeps persisting and asking a judge for justice. And she won't give up. Her desperation requires her to keep coming to him over and over and over. Or in Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells the story of a man who has guests at his house, and so he goes to his friend's house to ask for food, and he won't stop knocking at the door until the man gives him what he needs. So here's the thing. The storyline of the Bible features people who cry out to God in their desperation. In fact, I would argue that the storyline in the Bible, namely that we have cried out to God for the forgiveness of our sins, that's the gospel, this desperation is the means by which God then gives us grace. In other words, you become a Christian by realizing you're desperate. So I got news for you today. If you've come here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you're here today because you're searching because the bottom has sort of dropped out of your life, I got news for you. Every single person in this room who names the name of Jesus had the exact same experience. At some point in time, whether we were young or whether we were a little older, we all came to face to face with this reality. I can't rescue myself. I need somebody else. And that person is the person of Jesus. We begin the Christian life by desperation. We begin following Jesus by totally relying upon him, and that is not supposed to stop. It's really important for you to hear what I just said. If you're a follower of Jesus, desperation is not meant to be the abnormal reality of your life. It's meant to be the prevailing theme of how you live. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot bless us until he has us. When we try to keep with us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There is no bargaining with him. Here's the problem, though. We all know that we need desperation, but I'm sure it's true in your life as it is in mine. My commitment to desperation tends to leak. I know intellectually that I should be desperate, I know that I need God's help, but the fact of the matter is that because of my own self-sufficiency, something that we'll look at next week, this penchant for my own pride, combined with the comfort-craving, assurance-providing nature of our culture, those things all collude to wage war on my desperation. It's crazy, but desperation for most of us happens because of something that happens to us. It goes like this, you know you need God's help, but desperation awareness wanes as you become able to solve your own problems, to strategize your way out of issues, or just frankly, to trust in yourself. Then the crisis hits. Now God has your attention, now you know you need his help, and that's when you become desperate. So over the next four weeks, we're going to explore this idea of spiritual desperation. And for some of you, this particular subject is very familiar because you're already at the bottom. And what I hope is that this series will encourage you to persevere. I hope this series will give you some new resources for you to understand how it is that you make it in the midst of moments of desperation. 
And then there's others of you, I would suspect maybe even more of us, who know that you need to be desperate, but the reality is you've slidden into a pattern where it's become pretty easy for you to be able to trust in yourself, and then some little thing comes in your life and you're like, for real? Again? And rather than embracing desperation as a gift, you're pushing against it. And if that happens over and over and over and over in your life, you'll end up having a bitter, angry, frustrated heart instead of embracing the beauty of the gift of this idea of desperation. So through the month of August, we're going to be giving you some opportunities to put this into practice. We're gonna start next Sunday at 7.15. We've done this before, but we're gonna have an early morning prayer time, and I hope for 100 or so people who would gather just to say, God, we're here, and I wanna kickstart my heart as I go into the fall season to seek you. Every Tuesday in the month of August, our staff is gathering to seek God's face and to think and pray about where the Holy Spirit is leading us as a church. Our aim is to seek God's face and be able to determine what is it that God wants us to do, what is he calling us to do. So pray for us on Tuesdays in the month of August. This month we have a host of just wonderful things that are taking place, but at the same time we want to be sure that God's in the middle of it. A few Sundays from now, we'll commission 150 people who are gonna go and replant a congregation in Greenwood. The Castleton congregation, as of this Sunday, has completely transitioned to live preaching. They no longer see the video of my preaching, which I'm sure they're thankful for. <laughs> in November, Fishers is gonna to move to self-governing. We're, we're launching a child, so to speak, into adulthood. There's, a call-out meeting happening this week in regards to the Pike Township Church plant. We have a new level of momentum that's happening in our student ministries. Our attendance over the summer has been up 8%. And I don't know if you saw the beautiful article written on Brookside and that was published in the Gospel Coalition website. So there are just unbelievably awesome things that are taking place. But here's the thing. In the midst of all those really good things, I want to be sure that as a church, we are on our face seeking God to be sure this is where he wants us to go. And to be able to say, God, what is it that you're calling us to do? What do you want us to even be? The question is, how do we cry out to God and say, God, we want you. We need you. So we start today with the story of Jacob's wrestling with God. It's an interesting text, isn't it? My wife asked me this morning, she was up early with me, what text are you preaching on this morning? So I told her, Genesis 32, 22 to 32, so she read it, and she got done, and she said, it's a weird text. <laughs> it was not encouraging. <laughs> but it's true. All week long, I've wrestled. What does this text mean? What does it mean? Here's what's happening. It's the story of Jacob's wrestling with God at a very critical time in his life. This encounter with God resulted in his name being changed, and then he walked with a limp the rest of his life. This is a huge moment. And it, this also becomes a bit of a predictor or a harbinger of how other people, the people of God, will also wrestle with God. But what I want you to see is that as hard and as inconvenient and Frankly, even as traumatic as this moment was for Jacob, it was actually a gift. And that's what I hope you'll be able to see today. That wherever God finds you, whatever circumstance you're in, rather than 
pushing against it, rather than saying, for real, how is this happening? Why, why, why? Instead, you could just embrace it and realize that desperation is a gift. Text begins in verse 22. The same night, it says, he arose, this is Jacob, and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Now, the Jabbok is a, a river, a tributary of the Jordan River. It feeds into the Jordan. It's about 15 miles or so north of the Dead Sea. And Jacob moves his family on the other side of the Jabbok in order to protect them. You might wonder why. Well, the reason he moves his family is because Jacob's family, like every family, including your family, has a history. It's a bit dysfunctional. Like your family reunion this summer. Like, just take comfort. There's, there's lots of other families that have interesting stories. Jacob's name means deceiver. And the problem in this text is that he is estranged from his twin brother named Esau. Years earlier, Jacob had convinced Esau to sell him his birthright. Esau came in from the field. He was hungry. Jacob had made something, a stew of some kind, and Esau, a rather impetuous man, was like, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. And Jacob, a deceiving, kind of manipulative person, says, I'll give you something to eat, but sell me your birthright. And Esau, just at a moment of passion, who cares about my birthright? Give me some stew. And so he sells his birthright for some food. Then at the end of his father's life, Jacob pretends to be Esau. He conspires with his mother in order to receive the blessing that was due to his older brother. Look at Genesis 27, 36. If you have a copy of the Bible, go back and look at verse 36 of chapter 27. Here is Jacob's own, or Esau's own words about Jacob. This is after he realizes he's been deceived. He says, Genesis 27, 36, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, he has taken away my blessing. And then go to verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Well, Jacob's family's a mess. Deception, lies, deep-seated bitterness. So he's warned by his mother that he needs to flee and so he travels 260 miles to the north and he lives with his uncle Laban for 20 years. There he meets the love of his life, Rachel, but in order for her to be married, his father-in-law tricks him into marrying Leah and then he also marries Rachel and now he's on his way back to Canaan. That's where the setting is. And what he does is, as he makes his way back into Canaan, he sends word to his brother Esau that he's heading home with the hope that he would find favor in his eyes. So Jacob sends messengers, lets Esau know he's going to be heading home. And Esau receives that message and the messenger that returns to Jacob tells him that Esau had received the message and he's coming to meet him. 
Mexico with 400 men. It's not a good sign. Jacob interpreted this small army as a threat, and that's why, that's why he moves his family to the other side of the river, because he anticipates a major confrontation. Look at chapter 32 and verse 9. Here's Jacob's prayer to God. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So what Jacob does then is he sends gifts to Esau. He attempts to ingratiate himself to them. So he sends a series of cattle gifts. He sends them in waves. 220 goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking cows with calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, and 30 donkeys to Esau. That's over 500 head of cattle. And the idea is he sent it in waves so that the first wave would land and Esau would be like, oh, that's kind of nice. And then another would come, oh, that's kind of nice. It'd be like, you know, you're gonna maybe connect with a family member that you're a little estranged to. You send them a, a gift card in the mail six weeks before you arrive, and then two weeks before you arrive. And then the day before you arrive, you send them flowers. And hopefully they're nice ones, so that your family member will know that you're thinking of them. So this is what Jacob does. Look at verse 23. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. So here we see a really important moment. His family is gone, his future's uncertain, he's done everything that he can, and now he's all alone. As I was studying for this text, I kind of went back and just did a survey of Jacob's life, and to be honest, it was exhausting. The conflicts, the mistakes, the family dysfunction, the problem with Esau, it creates all kinds of tension. I can almost imagine the depth of his isolation. Maybe your life hasn't been as traumatic as Jacob's, but I'm sure every single one of us can relate to a moment where we felt utterly alone. You can probably think of a time when just this gut-wrenching feeling settled on your soul when the promises of God, while you knew that they were true, they seemed like they were a million miles away. I remember one moment in my life sitting alone in a hospital room. Sarah had been wheeled away for a medical procedure related to a false pregnancy. I remember sitting in that room. I was scared. I was so tired, so alone, couldn't cry anymore. I was numb, nobody to call. It was just me and God, and I was completely desperate. You may be here today and you're there right now. Or, or maybe, maybe you have been there recently. For some of you, there's a, a chance that you may be there in the next few months. Some of you are starting school. You're already started school. There's going to come a moment when you're sitting all alone at the lunch table 
because you're having to make a right decision. Or maybe in your fraternity or in your sorority, there's just this, this, this sense of nobody really understands. And you begin to wonder, God, how in the world am I going to do this? Here's what I want you to know. Being alone and desperate is hard, but if you trace throughout the scriptures, you'll find that it's fairly normal for the followers of Jesus to be in these seasons. Think of Jesus in the garden. John on the island of Patmos, the Apostle Paul, when he said, we thought we had received the sentence of death in 2 Corinthians 1. Or when he said this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I just want you to mark it down somewhere in your mind that being a follower of Jesus means that there are going to be moments when you feel gut level all alone. You feel that way. You aren't, but it feels that way. Secondly, I also want you to know that those are some of the sweetest seasons of God pouring out his grace, and that's the painful paradox of desperation. In one moment, you can't stand it, and in another, it's so unbelievably glorious and helpful. Sure, there's many of you who could testify to the fact that moments of desperation, those really, really hard moments, are unbelievably transformative. The Apostle Paul says, about this sentence of death, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, 2 Corinthians 1. Or after being abandoned, he said, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So if you're here today and you're in one of those alone seasons, I want you to take heart. Michael Catt in his book, The Power of Desperation, says this, my greatest times with the Lord have not been on the mountaintop, it has been in the battles it is there where I have found him ready to meet me because God is attracted to weakness. He hears the cry of the desperate. Over and over again in the scripture, we see God respond to his people when they cry out to him. He's not an indifferent deity. He's a loving God who allows us to be broken so he can remake us more and more into his image. Church, that is why desperation is a gift. Because in the brokenness, God is able to reform us. What follows now in the text is a strange wrestling match. Beginning in verse 24, notice what happens. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So at the time, Jacob probably didn't know who this was. Didn't know if it was a, some sort of local adversary or somebody who had been sent from Esau all we know is that the battle continued throughout the night, and at some point, Jacob prevailed against the man with whom he was wrestling, but not before he was seriously injured. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Verse 26, then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Notice why. He's going to change his name. He says, because you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Now, what is the point of this passage? 
I spent a lot of time this week looking at various interpretations of how to take this particular text. This is a really important turning point in Jacob's life. And notice, it's God who initiates the wrestling. It's not Jacob who initiates. God comes to Jacob because there's something about this moment that God wants to use this wrestling scenario in order to change the trajectory of Jacob's heart. A commentator in the 1900s named Griffith Thomas, I think, hits the nail on the head about what this text is about. Here's what he says. The wrestling was an endeavor on God's part to break down Jacob's opposition, to bring him to an end of himself, to take from him all self-trust, all confidence in his cleverness, to make him know that Esau is to be overcome and Canaan obtained not by craft or flattery, but only by divine grace and power. Only by divine grace and power. You see, church, that is the secret of the gift of desperation, is it reminds you of something that was true before, but in your self-sufficiency you failed to know, and it's this, you can't make it on your own. And what desperation does is it awakens you to the reality of your position, of your ultimate need for God's help. Again, that's how you come to faith in Christ. It's how you become a Christian. You realize, I can't deal with my own sin on my own. I can't self-atone. I can't do things that are going to balance the scales of justice. I, I can't do things in order to somehow wipe away the slate of my record. My only hope is to throw myself at the mercy of God, to look to Jesus. I can't do it without him. That's how you came to faith, and that's how you continue to walk in faith. Desperation is not something that you simply start the Christian life with and then abandon. No, desperation instead is the mindset, it's the frame of thinking that following Jesus requires all of our days. Jacob needed to be broken, needed to realize his need for God's blessing in his life. And what happens is these moments of wrestling create this brokenness that opens the door for God's grace. For some of you, you just, you just understood what's going on in your life right now. You came into church thinking, I got this going wrong, I got this going wrong, I got this going on. And, and rather than being annoyed about all of those other things, it just became very clear to you that what God is attempting to do is to get your attention that you can't run your life. And I want you to know that's a gift. The story ends with Jacob walking with a limp. It ends with two major changes in his life that will mark him forever. The first is that his name was changed. His name was Deceiver, now his name becomes one who strives with God. So all of his life was marked by striving with people, whether it was his father, his brother, his wives, his father-in-law. And now he becomes one who strives with God. What happens here is that Jacob's wrestling opens his awareness to his need for God's ultimate blessing. And then it says that he walks with a limp. Verse 30 
So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face of God, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. So he not only called this place something special because he had seen the face of God, but the rest of his life, he was marked by this encounter with God. Some of you know this to be so true, and that is that desperate moments become the signature marker points in your life. Years ago, Dale and I were talking about pains and hardships in ministry, and we were just rehearsing brokenness. And If you trace the lives, frankly, of all of our pastors, you'd find some moment where God broke them. And we were talking about the counsel that he had received from a friend that, look, this season will heal, but you will always walk with a limp. The fact of the matter is, is that those seasons and those moments, while painful and while they mark you for life, are the most transformative. If I were to ask and start conducting an interview one at a time, you could tell me of a season, I'm sure all of you, where, where God and his grace was very evident and very clear and very plain, but it normally comes in the context of hardship and suffering and difficulty. And this is why desperation is a gift, because it is the way in which God reminds us that we cannot make it on our own, that we need his forgiveness and we need his grace, but we also need to live in light of that grace all of our lives. I originally didn't plan to jump into this series in the month of August. We made the shift about six weeks ago. And part of the reason why is that, candidly, the last eight months have been some of the most exciting and some of the most difficult that I've ever faced in 20 years of ministry. Behind the scenes, some challenges, church discipline, leadership stuff, within the context of our church, have been incredibly hard and difficult, painful. And so we're entering into the season because as we look to where the Lord has us headed as a church family, there's one thing I know, and that's this. We need God's help. And we need God's help in ways we probably don't even know we need God's help. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? You need help in your marriage like you don't even know you need help in. Your business needs help like you don't even know it needs help your, your your singleness and what you're wrestling with you need help in ways you don't even know what you need God's help that you know at one level but I'm saying there's a level of desperation underneath that that maybe we just need to get to so let me give you a few application points number one in light of this text I've said this before but I just want to emphasize it again that I want you to embrace desperation as a gift from God The greatest hindrance to our spiritual walk is the simple fact that we can see desperation as something that is negative. And as a result, it can lead people to become bitter or depressed or even walk away from Christianity altogether. Instead, what I want you to do is to have the mindset of the Apostle Paul and to agree with him when he said, I will boast more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
There's some of you, that's how you used to live. You were in the throes of a recovery from some blowout issue in your life, or you were at the bottom as you were searching for a job, and you just sought God, you sought God, you sought God, and then your marriage recovered, your job got better, your life started to turn around, and suddenly now you're back to where you used to be. And friend, you ought to be freaked out that you're there. Because the whole purpose of the other things that happened to you was to awaken you to your need and then what happens is the bounty and blessing comes. We just settle into our own self-sufficiency which is a dangerous pattern and we all know it. We ought to see desperation as a gift. Secondly, we need to see the danger of living desperation light. We live in a culture that thrives on self-reliance. And here's the thing, the more money you get, the more tel- intelligence you gain, the more wisdom that you accumulate, the more experience that you have in life, the more you can buy your own security, the more you can create your own solutions, the more you can figure your way out of problems. So if you're like, I don't have the money, I don't have the smarts, I don't have the solutions, you gotta thank God, you gotta go, no solutions, <laughs> no answers. No money, right? Because here's the deal. Our experience, our wealth, our success, and our strategies, friends, mean nothing unless God's in them. They don't. And the final thing I would say by way of application is for you to consider to take some steps to cultivate desperation. So number one, see desperation is a gift. Number two, see the danger of living desperation light. And three, take steps to cultivate desperation. Next week, we're going to talk about self-sufficiency. So you need to come back to figure out how that connects into this whole issue. But I want to issue a two-fold challenge to you this morning. It's this. Number one, what one thing could you give up to make more room for God's grace in your life? What one thing? I want you to create space for God. What one thing could you give up? Maybe that's 30 minutes of sleep, so you just get up a little earlier, or you just watch a little less TV, or turn the radio off on your drive into work, or you come to church at 7.15 next Sunday a little earlier, just for you to be able to kickstart your heart and say, God, I need you. Like, I need you like I don't even know I need you to be able to say, God, I'm going to create some space in my life in order to be able to hear from you. And not only what maybe you ought to give up, but here's the second thing, what one step could you take to facilitate more desperation in your life? What one thing could you do? What one step could you take over the next 30 days just to say, God, I wanna be able to make more room for your grace. What step of faith do you need to take in order to open the door for more of God's grace in your life? Because here's the thing, the little boy on the subway who said, I want my money, what he wanted is nothing compared to the value of wanting God's grace. And what I'm praying for and what I'm longing for is a group of people, a church, who would say with the same level of abandoned, I want Jesus. I want his grace. I want to know you, God. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want Grace, I want you, Jesus, and who would say to him, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. And in that prayer and in that passion, we could see God pour out a special measure of his benevolent grace to us, a needy people, 
who need to know about our need for Jesus. So let's be a desperate people and see desperation as a gift. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would pour out the grace that we need today for some who are here who are in the middle of a hard moment in their life. Would you just remind them that you're in control and that your grace is sufficient for whatever they face. God, for others whose hearts are just, if they're honest, are hardened and are just settled into a pattern, Lord, would you let them just be a little afraid, fearful of where that could lead? And would you use the next 30 days or so to reignite within them a passion to really follow you? So Lord, now, would you by your spirit help us to know what it means to really seek you, to be a people whose hearts are desperate for you, longing for you, crying out for you. So come, Lord, right even now, because we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.